Next week is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, our celebration of the resurrection. So we're going to have worship at 8.15 and at 10.45. We want you to bring your family, your friends, your neighbors. People are looking for a place to worship on Easter. Bring them to First Baptist next Sunday. We want to fill the house on the Lord's Day, this very wonderful day of celebration. I'm going to start a new series next Sunday that I'm going to be teaching for about eight weeks. We're calling it Transformed. It's about what happens with the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and how God empowers the lives of the believers today as well as back then, how He has not only changed us when we trusted Christ as Savior, but how He continues to change us. So that's the series Transformed, and I'm going to be teaching on that subject Easter through Pentecost Sunday. So that'll be in the first part of June, all right? Today is Palm Sunday, the day we remember how Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives on that donkey with the crowds putting their palm branches in the way, laying their coats on the road, and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was that day that God ordained in the life and ministry of Jesus during his time here on earth. On that day, he was recognized for who he was. And even though it was a donkey, and even though that crowd was full of children and women and the authorities maybe weren't there, it was a day when he was majestic in his glory. And he entered Jerusalem like a king would have entered Jerusalem, like the son of David should have entered Jerusalem. But from that time forward, and in the tested series that I've been talking about over these last weeks during this Lenten season, from that time forward, from Palm Sunday forward, things began to deteriorate in the relationship of the authorities to Jesus and even with the disciples and Jesus. And finally, we have the Last Supper where Jesus talks about, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. And from the Last Supper, they go to the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then to the betrayal by Judas who comes and kisses him on the cheek and in this way identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. And then to the arrest by the mob with their clubs and their torches who grab Jesus and take him away then to the trial by the chief priest, the high priest who ruled that he is guilty of blasphemy. And in the midst of that, the denial by his chief follower and the leader of the band of disciples, Peter, who refuses to even acknowledge that he knows Jesus. And on then to the court of the governor, Pilate, who examines him and decides that he must die. And the scripture says in Mark chapter 15, after Pilate rendered this verdict, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. The theme today is the test of mockery. 
Already Jesus has experienced the mockery of his tormentors, of the soldiers, and of the priests. But here we see the mockery full-blown. Here is Jesus, son of David, Savior and Messiah, dressed in a purple robe by his tormentors and crowned with a crown of thorns some one of them made. I want you to see him this morning, our Savior and Lord, treated in such a way. See the king draped in his royal robe. See the crown on his head. The silly robe is meant to be a joke. It's a joke. That's what the soldiers think. The crown of thorns is a painful reminder that this king is delivered into the hands of sinful men and they will show him no mercy. Look again at this man, Jesus of Nazareth, already beaten and bruised. It is true what the soldiers say in mockery with this robe and this crown. He is the king. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the king. But right now, the things they say, they're in jest. They kneel before him and it's all a joke. And yet as you see him in his robe, and his crown. Don't you see a majesty about Jesus of Nazareth? There is a strange composure to this man in the middle of his sorrow. He seems to have a relentless resolve, no matter what they do to him. A fearful restraint in his pain, refusing to strike out even refusing to speak a word to his accusers. Some of you have seen the Hunger Games. The Mockingjay is the symbol of the revolution in this sci-fi series. And when you hear the Mockingjay, the Mockingjay says things that it's heard somewhere else. All it does is mimic the sounds that it's heard. The Mockingjay doesn't know whether it's true or whether it's false, the thing that it says. And these soldiers are the same way. They're mocking Jesus, but they don't know whether the words are true or false. They say of him, Hail, King of the Jews! Do they know whether those words are true? They don't know. It's just mocking. They're saying what they've heard others say, what the priests have said and accused him of. They're just repeating. They're mimicking the priests who have sentenced him to die. The governor who has sentenced him to die. They scream at him what they have heard others say about him. I am confident that some of these soldiers are silent, embarrassed to be part of this awful scene. Some are reluctant in their jests and their jabs. Some are drunk with their power over the man from Galilee and ready to see him bleed and die. 
this passion season, we are watching it all unfold from a long distance of 2,000 years. Yet when you read it and when you see Jesus in his robe and with his crown, it all seems very close and very personal. Behold the man, the king, the lamb. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. This is scorn. And scorn ignores moral boundaries. They began to call out to him, the scripture says, this and that. He is by himself a wounded and beaten man. And the group is casting their accusations and mockery at him. And when somebody voices their thought and puts it into words and sends it out over the airways, it becomes public then. And everybody joins in. They call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard such a call? Have you ever been the one to be ridiculed by the gang, by the mob, by the rest? Has that ever happened to you? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever been part of a gang that sent out that mockery? When I was a boy, we have a brother named Joe that most of the time we used him for second base, you know. There were five of us boys and then a girl, then Joe came along and he just got the raw end of the deal. That's all you can say. And I believe it was him we were spitting on. And my mother caught us, you know, spitting. And she said, stop that. Don't you spit on one another. Don't you know they spit on Jesus when he died? I mean, we quit spitting. Because the soldiers spit on Jesus and we did not want to be like them. The next time you join in a group that is mocking in scorn an individual who is alone, no matter what the circumstances, I want you to think about this scene. And I want you to contemplate, young people, I want you to hear this, okay? I want you to think about whether you're going to be part of the group that mocks the injured member. Are you going to be scornful? The scripture says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There is no blessing, young person, college student, person at work. There is no blessing from God for the one who joins with the group to misuse and abuse a vulnerable and weak member. There's no blessing there. 
We ought to withdraw from that just like my brothers and I withdrew from spitting because that's what the soldiers did and we didn't want to be like that. Scorn discards honor and dignity. It strips its object of all human qualities. It does this so that it may lash out and unleash whatever it wishes without the pause of conscience. I want you to think for a moment about the poverty of Jesus who said foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. I want you to think about his abject poverty. Here's a man who owns one suit of clothes. And if he had to pack everything he owned, he could put it in a paper sack. I want you to think about the poverty of a man in a justice system that responds differently to the powerful than it does to the weak, that responds differently to the wealthy than it does to the poor. There's nobody here from Galilee who's going to stand up and say to the governor or the high priest, I know Jesus and I'm the governor of Galilee or I'm the king up there and let me tell you about how good a man he is. Nobody's going to intercede for Jesus. There'll be no wealthy parent who will stop up and say, you're not going to treat my son like that. His earthly dad, Joseph, is dead, but even when he was alive, he was a lowly carpenter who couldn't even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. They were peasant people, and so was Jesus. And sometimes the rich and powerful can buy what's called justice, in the court but Jesus doesn't have that coin he doesn't have that lineage he's not connected to the powerful politicians of his community nobody stands up for him the test of mockery this is the test of mockery, and everybody experience, experiences mockery, and it is very powerful. You know, preachers experience mockery in jest, all right? Some mockery is just kind of poking fun. And, and so a lot of times people will mimic the preacher, and, and they'll even do it for him, which is fun, you know. But... When the mockery is intended to be mean, intended to be demeaning, which it, when it's intended to denigrate and to bring down the person, when it's intended to dehumanize him and strip him of his dignity, whatever he's got left, just lower him to the dust. That kind of mockery is a challenge to faith. Sometimes it comes from very smart people who think they know more than you. Maybe classmates or people under whose authority you work or teach. And they begin to mock 
your faith, your belief, your values, even your virtue. It's a powerful tool used against a man of honor. The test of mockery is this. Your willingness to respect the dignity of others when you yourself are being humiliated. Will you respond in kind? Will you do to them what they have done to you? Or are you willing in the midst of the mockery to respect the dignity of those who abuse you? Jesus was tested in this way and stood the test. Verse 20 of Mark 15 says, And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. This is execution by the government. This is not the electric chair. It's not lethal injection. But if you go to a museum that displays the Roman form of punishment you would find the cross nailing a man to a tree, hanging him up to die. They crucified him is a short sentence of long duration and deep pain. And all of it is done as the mockery continues. From the time they drape the robe on him and press upon his head the crown of thorns, he is the object of ridicule. Mockery bludgeons with fearful power. Mockers come in groups. They come in companies. They perform their humiliations in gangs. These soldiers far outnumber Jesus. They slap him around the circle from one to the other. He is in the company of mockers, surrounded by them. People do things in groups they would never do on their own. It is the mob mentality. There is an anonymity in group. No single soldier in this group is going to be held accountable for how Jesus was treated on that day, at least not by the governments of that time. It feels safe to be in a group and mock somebody. 
feels like there's safety in numbers if everybody's doing it and everybody's persecuting the kid who is wounded or hurt or cut out of the herd. It feels safe to do it. In fact, there's a way in which it doesn't feel safe if you don't do it. It feels risky not to join in. The company, the crowd, is without a conscience. You remember that. You have the ability to discern right and wrong as an individual, but you give an action or decision to a group of people who are set on something evil or wicked. And the crowd seems to have no conscience. The humiliation of Jesus goes on and on without any restraint. These soldiers are dressing and undressing Jesus as if he were a rag doll. I imagine in my mind that he holds his arms out as they put the robe on him and as they take it off. It's not only that he surrendered to the cross, but he surrendered to every step of this humiliation. He is submitting to the mockery, to the beatings, and eventually the crucifixion. He is going without resistance to the cross. He is going in pain and in trauma, and shortly he will die of the wounds that he sustains. He is walking through this valley, depending on the strength of the Spirit for the need of this hour. The crowd feels strong, and they feel that Jesus is weak. The high priest says, don't you know we've got authority over you? Aren't you going to speak up? And he says not a word. Pilate says, aren't you going to defend yourself? What about these charges? Don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me had it not been given you from above. Pilate, governor, all you've got is borrowed power. That's all. This is happening by permission of a higher authority than you can imagine. The test of mockery is your faith in a good God when evil seems to have the upper hand in your personal life, in the circumstances of your loved ones, maybe in your community or in your country or in your world. If you look at any setting and you say, it seems like evil has the upper hand. It seems like I am being mocked for my faith. The people who are making fun of me are for holding on to my values. Mockery is your faith in a good God, even when evil seems to have the upper hand. I can tell you surely that evil men, wicked men, nailed Jesus to the cross. That's what Peter says in his sermon. But it was by the predetermined counsel of God that it happened. And Jesus is going through his trial and hearing the mockery and maintaining his composure in silence because he knows his Father is over all things. He is not afraid. 
Sometimes we ask, where's God? Where's God in my trouble? Where's God in my sorrow? Where's God in my pain? God answers your question at the cross, not with a philosophical argument, but by saying to you, I sent my son and gave him up to die on your behalf. And all the pain and sorrow that he suffered was for you. So when you ask, what do I do with my own sin? What do I do with the sin of the world and the evil in the world? God leads you to the cross. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. It's amazing the detail in the story of the crucifixion. Almost half of the Gospel of Mark is about the last week of Jesus' life. We already read where Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the cross. Mark records his name, and not only that his name is Simon, but that he is from Cyrene a Jew from a Greek community in what is now Libya. And then he records that Simon has two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And so he identifies the man who carried the cross in these three ways, by name, by geography, and by progeny, Alexander and Rufus. The details here are surprising until you read Romans 16:3 and realize that Rufus was part of the church in Rome the son of the man who carried the middle cross Mark records these things to help us understand that eyewitnesses are still present when the word goes out, the gospel goes out, that Jesus died this way with this sign on his cross, the king of the Jews. You got to get it in your mind, see? God's reversing everything they thought about the Messiah. It's all upside down and backwards. They thought he'd be a king that would crush the Romans, but instead it's a purple robe and a crown of thorns. They thought he would be victorious and riding with his sword, and instead he is drugged through the streets of Jerusalem and hung up to die. And this is a Messiah? What is this? This is God taking upon himself the sin of the world, not doing what we would have expected or thought or scripted for the Messiah to do, but suffering in isolation. The mockery is intended to isolate its victim. They heap the insults on him because they want him to feel how alone he really is. We all die alone, somebody said. 
But Jesus dies in a way that's really lonely and isolated. Even the folks who are crucified with him hurl their insults at him. And the people walking by mock him and say, come down from the cross if you're really the Messiah. Save yourself. God did this for us. Jesus died alone. The disciples truly fled. Nobody came to the trial to stand up for him and his solitude is experienced for you when you have felt alone and lonely and isolated like nobody cares for you. If you've experienced that isolation, know that Jesus bore it on the cross. Mockery's test is your spiritual and moral strength when you are alone, when you are singled out or made the object of cruelty. Will you stay true even though it's only you? Jesus hung on the cross and shed his blood alone so that you might, in the aloneness of your heart, by yourself, with your own volition, choose to serve him and love him as Savior and Lord. In the end, every man and woman stand alone before God to give their own answer. What about Jesus? What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? It's your answer that you must give. Mockery sometimes tells the truth. In verse 31, the scripture says, In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Next Sunday is Easter. Had Resurrection Day not happened, Jesus of Nazareth would have died in obscurity and you would never have heard of him. I think this is true. It is only in the wake of the resurrection that Jesus becomes the talk of the town and the talk of the world. And the mocking priests have a word to speak before even the disciples understand what's going on. To them, it is pure tragedy. It is a horrible miscarriage of justice. The best man they ever knew, they never caught him in a sin or a lie, is hung up to die. And the priests say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Perhaps they mean by saving others that he healed a blind man. He made a lame man walk. Maybe they're thinking about Zacchaeus, corrupt and lonely, 
coming down from that tree and suddenly a different kind of life for him. Maybe it's the woman at the well with her moral failure and social isolation and the transformation that happened in her. Maybe they're thinking about those fishermen. Like Peter said, he saved us from the empty way of life handed down by our forefathers. We were rescued from an empty way of life. Maybe somebody in the room has felt that before, a kind of empty life without a real purpose, without real meaning. He saved others. He did it over and over again. That was what Jesus of Nazareth did. And they were right that he saved others, but he could not save himself. They said, come down from the cross, and he could have if he wanted to. He said, don't you know I can call legions of angels right now? But he didn't. He couldn't save Peter and come down from the cross. He couldn't rescue Zacchaeus and give up on God's plan. They only understood it in hindsight. Once the resurrection occurred and the Holy Spirit came, they looked back on it and said, now we understand. The cross was part of God's plan. He sent his perfect son, the lamb, the Passover lamb to die for us in our place and the life that has the lamb's blood upon it the death angel passes over and so the scripture says he himself is our Passover he is our mercy seat he is the satisfaction for our sin Sometimes a mocker tells the truth and the truth is love for you held Jesus to the cross. So where do you go? You go to the cross. For what's broken in here, you go to the cross. For forgiveness of sin, for a future that's eternal, you go to the cross. Where else do you have to go for the purpose and meaning of your life other than to the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you?